Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. The U.S. Open at Los Angeles Country Club. Nobody has ever seen it. I say that, well, you could have probably watched a little bit of the 2017 Walker Cup. And if you're really, truly a nut job, maybe you saw footage of the Pac-12 Conference Championship when Max Homa shot 61. I doubt you saw that. But if you're going to talk to anybody about this golf course in preparation for the 123rd United States Open Championship, you talk to the guy who was entrusted to bring it back to what it originally was. That, of course, is Gil Hans, the rare in-studio for Gil Hans. And I promise you, he didn't come here for us. He came here for the dead and company. That's coming up next. It's only my sole connection to this. It's only in my hands on every single shot. It's an extra two yards of carry when it matters most. Yeah, only a grip. Mine are only golf pride. Respect the grip. The only thing that'll get him off a bulldozer the dead. Look at you in the studio. How you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Good to be in town. Well, it's good to have you here and, and great timing because we're on the doorstep of something that, that I know you and your team are excited about, but most importantly, golf should be excited about. I, I look at Los Angeles Country Club and I go, is there a more valuable golf course in the world? <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Um, let's go back to the beginning. The first conversation you had with the club, do you remember it? I do. We, we, you know, Bruce Williams was the superintendent, and they were looking to bring in another consulting architect. They had uh, John Harbottle uh, on property, and he was going to be involved in the interview process as well, but they wanted to cast a little wider net and have some opinions on their golf course. So they, we were one of the, I think, five or six. Uh, we immediately went to Jeff Shackelford, who we had worked with at Rustic Canyon, and said, all right, t teach us everything you know about George Thomas. And that was fairly substantive. I mean, he knows a lot about George Thomas. So Jim Wagner and I brought Jeff onto the team, and we went and presented. And I remember very clearly saying, listen, you know, you have a name architect here. It's George Thomas. And if you want an architect, you want to hire a firm that will understand or try to, you know, put back George Thomas, we're in. You know, that really is ultimately what we were hoping to do there. And I think that excited them. They understood the legacy, the history. And so we, we got the gig. Well, we want everybody to enjoy everything about this show. So when you mentioned Jeff's work, I highly recommend uh, reading and listening to all the stuff he has uh, about Los Angeles Country Club. He's done a great job in the run-up of, of giving you great detailed information, anecdotal historical footnotes uh, about each hole, not to mention these great estates that, that <laughs> dot the property. Also, you were a part of the Fried Eggs a U.S. Open preview. They did a fabulous job as well. I recommend uh, consuming all of that as well. George Thomas, one of the things that you always do is that you want to know as much as you can about these people. Uh, you've done it, whether it be A.W. Tillinghast, whether it be Perry Maxwell, whether it be Donald Ross. Um, you're entrusted with these very important pieces of land uh, that they applied their intellectual uh, 
you know, bona fides to what did you learn about Thomas as you started to peel back the layers on him? Yeah, I think people throw the term Renaissance man around. He was really a Renaissance man. I mean, he everything that he understood, whatever topic he was interested or invested in, he went full bore, whether it was, you know, he was an early flyer. So people weren't flying. He, he flew a, in a battalion in World War One, and he financed the, the creation of it, crashed his plane several times, but understood about flying. Golf course architecture, obviously, you know, what we're here to talk about, amazing, but just very thorough and very thoughtful. Roses. The reason he went to Los Angeles was because the climate was good for growing roses. And so he wanted to go ahead and figure out the best place to do it and, and ultimately create and hybridize roses. Deep sea fishing. He went to the, off the coast of Mexico, raising, I think it was English setters. I mean, this guy, whatever he was into, he had the wherewithal. He had the financial ability to fully you know, put himself into these things. And so he was truly a Renaissance man. And you know, we're all the beneficiaries of the fact that he was enthralled with golf course architecture and left behind some of the greatest courses ever. You know, you mentioned the roses. Wasn't it also true that one of the reasons why he settled on the idea of relocating from the Philadelphia area for the climate, because his body was, was beat up from three crashes, I believe, in, in mm -hmm. seaplanes that were, you know, he volunteered in World War I, served in France for a year, comes back, um, and he came from a family of means. His father was a very successful banker, but I don't get the impression that he was above things. Like he had, he had, he had very good taste, I'm sure, but he didn't put himself above projects, above work, or above people, did he? Everything that I understand, no. And I think you know, you mentioned Jeff Shackelford was he was critical to not only us getting the job, but also to us understanding and ultimately peeling away a lot of the layers of what we put back at LACC. So Jeff, you know, when he talks about Thomas, it's with great reverence. You know, it was a time and place, you don't want to get too far off the track, but you know, where people of means really felt like it was important for themselves to give back to their country. And when they were asked to serve, they served. And, they, and he served in some of the, you know, the greatest ways, not only with his own time, his own life and body he put in, in harm's way, but also his, his fortune that he put in to, to finance these things. So he was clearly a man who had high ideals, high standards, and, and as I said, really we're, we're delighted he applied them to golf. It's interesting about the, the, the golf course itself. He was the supervisor on the original work of Herbert Fowler. And it wasn't that long that they revisited him going in and doing what he did. What did he learn about himself, about his own philosophy that changed from the time that he supervised the original project in the early 20s to what they did in the late 20s? Well, I think, you know, when he first got to L.A., he had, you know, he had done his family's estate, White, White Marsh Valley. He had done the little nine-holer in Marion. He had been involved at Pine Valley. He had seen Pine Valley constructed. He was a founder. He was, you know, one of the confidants of George Crump. So he understood what golf architecture was, but he is the way he practiced it, he didn't have a lot of experience with that. So in the timeline from 19, early 1920 to 1927, he had started building golf courses. He had gotten much more of a flavor for it and really an understanding. He had partnered up with Billy Bell, who became his practical partner, who understood how to construct and build, and I think was heavily influential on him from a, an aesthetic standpoint. So in this time between 20 and 27, he started to realize, I, I can only guess, but wow, this North Course is on an amazing piece of property, and perhaps 
Fowler didn't maximize it. And he had had this time to play there, to see it, to look at it. They'd had a couple of tournaments. There was some critical response to a couple of golf holes out there. So he had this treasure trove of knowledge in those seven years that he thought, I can make this place better. And, and obviously being a member at the club and having been entrusted with other properties, they said, okay, what do you think? And he just started to modify it, change it, and make it into the course we know today. Gil, if, if he had not done, he and Billy Bell had not done Bel Air, had not done Riviera, which were lauded for what they were, do you think that they would have entrusted him to do what, what he did? Hard to say, because I don't know what his personal relationship was with Joseph Sartori, who ran the place, or Tufts. Uh, you know, there, there was obviously a power structure there, and I don't know who was calling those shots, whether they would have ultimately given him that opportunity, but it certainly didn't hurt that he created these great yep. things and that they were lauded. He wrote a book about golf architecture. I mean, he, he had really become one of the leading experts in the country during this period of time, and so I think without a doubt it made it a lot easier for them to entrust him with it. So when you guys get on the property, you've described this, I've heard it several times, that it felt like an archaeological dig that you were uncovering things and you weren't deliberately trying to, but you were of all the things. And I think I know the answer to this. What was the thing that you uncovered that tickled you the most? Well, it'd be the two greens that we got to, to put back, right? Number two and number six that had been covered over um, initially both to try to chase length because they made two into a par five, moved the green way up to the right and then extended the eighth hole and put it on top of the second where the second green was. And then six, they moved the green back, chasing length, and they covered over the top. Then they moved it back, and there are a couple of other iterations there. But based on Jeff's research and what he found in the aerial photographs, it was almost like, okay, we think it's there. And that's where it should be, and it should be about six feet down. So we started peeling the dirt away, really you know, just kind of roughly get it out of the way. And then when we got down closer to where we thought the grades might be, is very talented excavator operator Adelino Vieira and he just started literally scooping away with an excavator bucket inch at a time inch at a time and then he hit this black layer which was you know thankfully when they it's it's interesting because a lot of times we're hopeful um, that when the people covered over work or they covered over bunkers they did a really bad job of it and they left a lot of clues behind for us to find We've never seen something like this before where he was just peeling it away and you could see he basically followed the contours and we could see old cups that were cut into the profile of it. It was the most incredible thing, you know, archaeologically, architecturally on any project. But again, that just gets back to the point of Jeff knowing and understanding and saying, I think it was there and he was pretty close to right all the time at what elevation it was. And because of that, we had the opportunity to scoop away and, and basically peel away and say, okay, here are the green, the outline, the contours are pretty close to the same. We just dug it down, laser mapped it, and put it back. Wow. I, I have a pretty good understanding of your career timeline, but I do know this. You are commissioned more than anybody when it comes to you know restoring some of the most important work in the country. At that time, you weren't. Um, so... Was it daunting? Was it intimidating? Um, I'm sure to some degree, even today, you know, going out to Oakmont, you don't take any of this stuff for granted. I know you don't. But what was your mindset back then? 
we understood how important it was. I mean, Jim and I both knew that this was, you know, another plateau that we were moving to. I mean, we had worked at great places like Fisher's Island and Catanza, but they're sleepier, quieter. Although LA was definitely in that same camp yep. at that point in time. I don't know if if you gave us truth serum, would we ever think that we'd be seeing a U.S. Open played at LACC? And we certainly never thought it when we were doing the work there. But we understood that how few George Thomas courses there were. So from our standpoint, it was really more an opportunity to reveal George Thomas. And as we got deeper and deeper and deeper into it, we realized how, what a genius he was and how special L.A. North was in, within his work. So I think the pressure came much more from the standpoint of doing the right thing by George Thomas than it ever thought of you know, doing the right thing because we might host a Walker Cup or we might host a U.S. Open. But the name of the club, the reputation of the club, all of those things, you know, us being from the East Coast, I don't think we knew fully, but we understood it was a special, special place. And then you combine that with the fact that, you know, it happened, we were supposed to start right during the financial crisis mm -hmm. in 08, 09. Project gets delayed for a year, or at least the bulk of it. And then the golf construction world just goes dead. Nothing's happening. No new golf courses, very few restorations. And then you have our work at LACC and Bill and Ben's work at Pinehurst Number 2 happening simultaneously. So all of a sudden, the golfing world, since there's nothing else really to pay attention to, is, is locking in on these two projects. Not in a competitive way in any way, sure. shape, or form, but just to say, hey, look what's happening here. And I think the fact that you know theirs turned out amazingly well and then was ultimately on the national stage and hosting U.S. Open, and then ours turned out well, modestly speaking, and the, from the standpoint of everybody now looked at this as the potentially, I don't know that's a seminal moment or a turning point for the restoration movement, but certainly didn't hurt. So, so from the, the reopening, which is in 2010, mm -hmm. and I believe the negotiation and the discussion with the USGA went on, I, I think in a, in a very, you know, heated good way, like, from 2014 and then it gets and then it gets announced in 2015 where are you along the way like where what is your feedback what is your input what is going on with you and and the club and in turn the usga during this period up to the announcement so we we were we were in the know as far as the walker cup was concerned i mean we were part of those conversations um but as far as the U.S. Open, our focus at LACC at that point in time was on the South Course. Yeah. We were getting ready to do the South. And we heard whispers and rumblings because you're around the leadership at the club. But there was never any really direct, hey, do you think this is a good idea or do you think we should do this? It was obviously that was a club decision. Uh, if they had asked, I think we would have felt very comfortable saying we think the golf course is a suitable test for it. But we were most of our conversations at that point in time were, were on the South. Okay. You educated me on, on how important, if possible, a symbiotic relationship between whoever's doing the work on the golf course and the person who's entrusted to grow the grass on the golf course is. How important was that guy? And I, I begrudgingly am going to give him some run here. Don't worry, your name's going to be said any second now. Uh, how important was that? It was critical, honestly. I mean, part of what happened in the, in the 09 delay we were able to do the the fairway bunkering and the membership really all of a sudden was enthused about what we were going to do and it was a little bit of a test run for us it was also came at a point in time when they transitioned away from their golf course superintendent and brought russ myers onto the project and 
that was game changing because Russ just really appreciated and understood the architectural aspect of it. He's he's a great thinker and he was he was really not that he got bored with growing grass, but he loved all the other challenges. All right, how do we take care of the barrancas? How do we present this symbiotic relationship, as you said, between the native and the natural, which is so stunning at LACC and which we were trying to restore, and the architectural aspects of it, which we were trying to you know, make feel seamless with the surrounds, where for a long time they didn't. And so to have him be a critical piece of that and then to have him make recommendations that would ultimately only make the maintenance better, the hydronic systems, that was a hundred percent game changer and it also made it from the standpoint of the construction process we had a superintendent who was incredibly supportive of that and really wanting to be in our ears and listening and challenging and poking and prodding which you know russ can certainly do he can do all of those things but only in the pursuit of trying to make things better never in trying to tear anything down or poke holes in it or discredit things it was always just along the lines of hey I need to understand what you guys are trying to do architecturally and so, and how you want this course presented so I can do it right. And without him, I have no doubt this wouldn't have turned out nearly as well. Well, for those folks who are wondering, well, why? Oh, that's great. He's not there anymore. No. <laughs> he's, at, he's at another place that, again, you guys worked uh, in lockstep, and that's Southern Hills. And anybody who, who looked at that and went, oh, my God, that's that, that's extraordinary. The last time I saw Southern Hills, it was very different. And, of course, the PGA Championship was 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 a grand slam, um, and he was the guy. Yeah. Um, when you look at when you look at the golf course now, we'll, we'll talk about some specifics, but let's just talk about the sides because it's interesting. I have a quote here somewhere from Thomas about his feelings about about how the front nine, in some respects, philosophically, he thought, and I'm paraphrasing, should be maybe a a little bit sterner a test than than the inward nine. Is that applicable to LA North? Well, I think th from a natural features standpoint, yes, because okay. the Branca only really comes into play on the 17th hole on the back nine. So the, you know, the opportunity for you to lose your ball or put it into a position where you're not going to be able to play it, that primarily happens on the front nine. You know, a lot of the challenges that are associated with the Branca occur there. So I think as a result of kind of bigger swing scores, um, you know, that I think is ultimately where that can occur. The back nine, it's just hard <laughs> in certain stretches of it. But I think if you're talking about, you know, doubles and triples, you're probably going to see more of those because of the Branca on the front. Yeah, the and and give us your, your best way of explaining the, the optics and, and the strategy of, of the front and the back because it's different. It's different. It is, and you know, you you start off on that broad plateau by the clubhouse, and then you work your way down, and then all of a sudden you've got the branca cutting immediately in front of the second, then it winds its way up the side of the third, and then crosses again in front of the fourth, and then around the right hand side of the fourth green, and then right across down. Well, as it winds its way, but I'll go numerically, and then it cuts across the front of six green, and then winds its way all the way down the left side of seven, and then down, then it crosses and back over and now it's on the right side of eight and then crosses over eight and comes up the left side of the green. So you've got it in all these different places. And it's so ingenious the way those holes were fit into that landscape and how it's not like you're always encountering the, the barranca as a cross hazard. Sometimes it's lateral, sometimes it's diagonal, sometimes it's right up against the side of a green, other times it's away. And it's just 
the variety with which he placed that hazard, sorry, I still can't make myself say penalty. Yes. <laughs> that hazard throughout the golf course was ingenious. And we're going to see that on, on this. And so you feel like you're journeying your way up and then you're winding your way back down and then you finish up on the plateau. Whereas in the back nine, you're kind of playing from ridge to ridge and you don't really descend back down into the valley with the branca until the 17th hole. And even there, it cuts across the tee, which won't be, a, you know, it's way too short for those guys, but then it finds its way all the way down the right-hand side and the best angle into the green is from the right-hand side. So he utilized that beautifully. Whereas on the back nine, you're gonna see much bigger, bolder, broader, landforms as opposed to what you find on the front so it's got a great flow to it it really is lovely from the standpoint of how he incorporated the hazards in the form of the branca on the front and on the back the hazard is really more the tilt of the land mm -hmm. you're gonna have to control your golf ball as you play it into these big slopes because we expect it'll be firm given the weather that they're you know you're going to get out there and so the ball's really going to move across these fairways which i think you know, everybody's going to focus on how wide these fairways are, but effectively they're not nearly as wide because you have to hit it to certain segments. You really have to place your ball out there. You, um, for the years that you were a part of the Fox broadcast, I thought most notably in 2019, the aerials of Pebble Beach kind of were a game changer in terms of the presentation of, of the television product. I have a feeling that people are going to be, their minds are going to be blown, especially from the outset, Gil, when you, when you look at the enormity in the scale of one and 18 where where players are going to start you know one of the first two days and then obviously on on saturday and sunday people have have invoked the old course in one and 18 do you think there is some application to that i i think there is i mean the the fact that they share a common short grass area on the second half of 18 the first half of one i think is is gives you that sense you know, interestingly, when we when we arrived there, there those holes were by there were trees all down the middle of those, and so it, I mean that was one of the first things that was was accomplished was taking those down, and we were a little bit concerned and nervous about the reaction from the membership, but all of a sudden they looked out their clubhouse and said, "Whoa, you know, this it really is spectacular." The scale and the breadth of it, as you mentioned, I think is those two holes in particular really show off that. Is is one. Thomas philosophy. I, I've read that, that that the idea of 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 five par was very much in his wheelhouse. Is one a testament to that? It is, and, and we're all familiar with watching Riviera. Yep. You know, and we know that the first hole Riviera is a short par. It's basically a par four for it's those guys. It's a cupcake guys. for those guys, right? So there, if you don't walk off with a a four or a three you feel like, wait a second, you're already way behind. And I think that Thomas understood that. I think he looked at the par five as a starting hole as a great way to get around going. Average golfer can miss a shot and still play themselves back into the hole. The accomplished player from a, a mental strategy and swing standpoint is going to go, okay, I walk off that green, birdie, good start, eagle, oh my gosh, we jump-started par, uh, bogey. They feel like they've lost, you know, stroke and a half to the field. So the the things spinning in a player's head coming off of that, and then all of a sudden you walk just like at Riviera, second hole, smack in the face, you know, 490 yard par four where you've got to force carry over a barranca right short of the green. I mean, you really have to golf your ball. So he believed that there was a softer introduction to the game or to the golf course, and then after that, you know, the game is on. The um, the, the the bunkering there, um, the the word that you've used, which I love is that erosion 
is is part of the natural process. It's what happens to land. And if anybody looks at what what it was formerly um, during whatever, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, um, everything got very homogenized. And I think that's that's true of a lot that happened in design, not what, what was just being built, but what was already there. Everything seemed circular. Mm-hmm. Everything seemed so the same as opposed to what you were trying to bring back. And I think that that display starts right from the first tee. When you look down that hole and you're playing down, you can see so much. And what you see is this, you look at these landforms and you're going, wow, that looks like it's just been there. That's always been a part of what you want golf courses to be, that they look like they've been there. And Thomas was the same way, was he not? He was. And I think we we looked at the bunkering there and we, we kind of, Final, finally settled on an evolved form of um, Thomas and Bell. Kind of when their golf, their bunkering got better and better and better the more they practiced. And so we just looked at a bunch of examples. You know, Jeff had all these pictures, and we said, "All right, that's what we want to focus on." Even though it may not have been exactly what they did at LACC, it's their evolved bunker style, and, and it's as you said, all meant to replicate erosion. And so we thought, how do we do that? How do we get not only the shapes, the difference between where the grass is and where the sand is, but how do we get different textures? Because in nature, it's, you know, if we put the same grass all the way around the edging, and even though the edge was irregular, it would still look very similar, it would look homogenized. So we went with a fine fescue stacking underneath a tall fescue lip. So it's the one place where you've got Bermuda everywhere except for around the around the uh, bunkers and obviously the greens are bent but the the contrast between the green of the bermuda and then this more vibrant green ringing the bunkers and then the more muted green actually in the space between where the sand and and the grass starts was our attempt not only to get the take the erosion from a shaping standpoint but take it from a textural standpoint and try and give that sense of of being very natural that will be the most striking feature, without a doubt, visually on the entire golf course. It will also most likely be the most controversial aspect of those bunkers because players, you know, in this day and age, the way a lot of bunkers are maintained on tour and, and what these guys see, it, it, they're almost too perfect. Yeah. And so here, and players are generally begging for the ball to get in the sand. Here they're really going to beg for the ball to get in the sand because if they get hung up on those lips, who knows what they're going to find, what kind of stance they're going to have. Uh, how the ball's going to come out. So I think it's it's almost to a degree where we've extended the hazard beyond the margin of the hazard, right? So it's not just the sand, it's actually the surrounds of it that become that. And I think if you go to any of these great old natural links golf courses, you go to Pine Valley, you go to those, even some of the more modern ones, the sand hills of the world, the edging of the bunkers is perfectly natural and fits in. And so I think that's what we're going to see at LA. Now, is is left of eight, which looks like a bunker but is that going to be kept unkept i mean i I've, I've been told that that's going to play like you get in there it's going to be more rugged and and more rudimentary than than the other bunkers on the golf course is that true it is intended to be part of the baranca system okay. so it will fit into the hazard what the way they maintain it we'll see but that is the intention there and by the way while we're talking about maintenance chris wilson who came yeah. after Russ is one of Russ's protégés and he's done an amazing job and we're really excited to see I'm, we're really excited that 
to see how he presents the golf course because he has been an extension of Russ in that regard. Uh, blind shots. There's a couple mm -hmm. uh, that are out there. There are a few that are presented from the tee, and then there's some shots, depending on angles, you're going to be playing to, to greens based on elevation that you're not going to be able to see the green surface. What do you think the reception of the players will be to, to the, the blind shots presented to them? You know, I don't think they're going to enjoy it, but they probably won't say a lot because it's an old golf course. I had one of the best conversations. You mentioned, you know, the, my time with Fox. Yep. We were at the fifth hole at Oakmont. I was walking with Paul Azinger and Faxon and a group of guys. And I said, you know, Paul, what do you think about blind tee shots? And he goes, I hate them. And I said, well, what about this one? And he said, no, this is fine. And I said, well, why? And he said, because it's always been here. You know, this is just the way it is. It's an old golf course. I said, well, what if we built a hole and had a blind tee shirt? a tee shot and he said i'd hate it and i said well why and he said because you could have changed it but you chose not to move earth and get it out of the way so i think it was that just a light bulb went off into how tour players think about yep. architecture and i think will they love it no will they be accepting yeah i think so because the history of the course the history of the club is such and the reputation of the golf course i think even for players who are not architecturally in tune they understand it's a special place so they'll probably won't question it that much i, I have the feeling that the the, the par threes are going to be talked about a great deal uh i think they're going to be memorable they're spectacular uh and there's there's tremendous variety in terms of the way they look the way that they play Give me your thoughts on the fourth hole. Um, I, I again, I, I start, I start thinking about these, and I want to get to eleven. But I, just take me through the threes, <laughs> if you would. Sure. I, you know, I think four is it may be the hardest green to hit. It's kind of domed. It's crowned, and, and it's you know, it's slopes comes off the front, off the off the right hand side and the back. Balls will feed off of that as well. Now you're drop, you know, you're an elevated shot down to it, so balls should be coming down fairly soft. But if that green gets firm and your ball hits anywhere near the edges, it's going off the green. And so I think while the green sitting there as a target looks okay, it's a much smaller target to play into. So I think that's going to be one of the tougher ones with the, you know, the tee offset a little bit to the left, um, you know, going to play over 200 yards, I think. And the, and the trouble around that green is, is, is no bargain because that's where the branca basically wraps its way around. And then you've got the bunker on the left. You know, if you hit in that, playing down to the green is not going to be an easy shot. So I think four, four will be a really difficult hole. Seven because of the length. Um, you know, they can play that at close to 300 yards, I think 284 from, um, but it's an open green, right? So you can run a ball onto it. You've got plenty of room. You actually have a supporting slope out to the left that'll feed balls back into it. So I don't think, I mean, as an average golfer, we look at it and go, okay, that's going to be hard because it's so long. But I think for them, that's going to be green. And you hear tour players say this, I'm just going to hit it somewhere close, make my three and, and go. Um, Nine is, you know, greens within a green. There's really sort of segmented. You've got the, the gr great shelf that's tucked up over the bunker on the left-hand side, which is not easy to get at. The sleeper pin is the one back right. There's a little shelf back there that you've got to play to. And then you've got sort of the transitional slope and then the, the pin way down front. So you have four distinctly different hole locations. I'm not sure which ones they're going to use. But they're really different. That whole play, while the yardage won't vary that much, maybe 10, 15 yards, you still, the shots you're going to be required to hit into that segmented green, I think is really going to be critical. Uh, 11's the showstopper. I mean, that's the one that all the photos are going to be taken of. And that is, 
So you mentioned earlier, you know, Thomas took Fowler's design and modified it. 11 is a brand new golf hole that was came sprung right from his mind. And they probably moved more earth on that golf hole than anywhere else, because you look at the slope feeding in off the mm -hmm. left hand side. And then all of a sudden you've got this big piece of dirt sitting there to, and holding up the right hand side of the golf hole. So that one, you know, it keeps, everybody keeps talking about being a reverse Redan, and there are characteristics of that, but the green doesn't keep feeding. Like a Redan normally feeds and kicks down in. That one, the ball basically, if, you're, if you have a front hole location or anything on the left-hand side, you can use that slope to kick it and feed it to it. If the pin's anywhere towards the back or on the right side, you're probably not going to use it. So that, from a diversity standpoint, will be interesting to see. And, and the length, again, can be 300 yards. And then the little 15th is that's the charmer and that's the one that you know we all want to see it play at 75 85 yards to that sliver i mean it's like seven paces deep and it's one of those greens that you know that front hole can you talk about greens within a green yeah that hump in the middle separates that sliver of a green from the rest that kind of hooks around the bunker in the back so while it will play short again the diversity and the the very the variability in the hole locations is going to be really very, very different. So when you put them together as a set of five, and that's another thing, too, to think about from a scoring perspective. You know, you hear a lot of chatter about what the scoring is going to be. When you look at it week in, week out on the tour, and whenever these guys have their statistics, they generally don't score well on par threes. You know, the scoring average on par threes is a little bit over. Now you got five of them here. So while you've got three par fives, you have five par threes to help balance that out, which I think will help keep the scoring in check a little bit. The um, you you like, and I'm I'm going to ask you about 15 with respect to, have you built a hole that, and you like the the little the the, the holes that are short that then have a small green? I think of Boston Golf Club mm -hmm. uh, in particular. Uh, is there is that shot not a par three necessarily? that remind you of anything, a short hole with a small green? You know, we, we tend to like to build short holes with greens that are wider than deep. We'd like to give you a little chance to kind of go side to side <clears throat> with your miss. Nine and oh, hoopy, it's on a little bit of a diagonal, but again, deep. Deep, and you know, so from the standpoint of giving you the opportunity to get that club exactly right, whereas 15 uh, gives you the opportunity, I mean, you can miss it long. Like you can pull it and be long and be on the green, but you don't want to have anything to do with that putt coming up and over that hump. So there's a little bit more of a diagonal characteristic to it than holes that we tend to like to, to build, but that section of the green that sliver in the front we've we've done that we've also you know number six the short par four at lacc we've emulated that a few times so having the ability to just make sure and, and that's when it plays 75 or 85 whatever how many yards it's going to be you've got one chance to get that club right because you don't want anything to do with being short or being long because then chances are you're scrambling to make a four we haven't talked about six yet but that little area of the golf course six seven and eight very provocative, but also, and it's not your concern uh, in terms of pace of play, but that could be a challenge for the USGA because you have a potential for a lot of players of reaching the sixth green. Um, the seventh is what it is. It's par three, and then eight is par five that for the lion's share of these players, they're going to be thinking about obviously reaching that green. How about that? Just a thought on, on those three holes 
and you got a 156 man field. Right. Well, then you go to nine as a par three. Exactly. Two. So it extends even a little bit further. I have no idea what the USGA is thinking, whether there's going to be a call up policy on six, if they're going to try and encourage the players to do that. I mean, obviously the players have to agree to it. They can't yeah. enforce that. Um, whether that's ultimately what will happen or not, I don't know. But you're right. There's the potential there for things to get a little bit backed up. And, you know, I, I think I heard that the time par on the golf course was 443 or something like that so uh, that'll be a slow part hopefully there are yeah. other parts where they can kind of spread out and get back into get back into position one of the things about this golf course and really about his philosophy and that is george thomas and billy bell is like a design inside a design mm -hmm. explain that and how it's applied on this golf course they they Kind of used it a little bit in the Walker Cup with the elasticity that the golf course has. Explain what design inside of design is. Yeah, I think it, it, it's um, you know what what he referred to it as courses within a course, and from the standpoint that gives the design within the design of a whole. There's you know the simplified way is to say there are corresponding T locations with corresponding hole locations. You know when you look at number three and number five with those extracted teeth, you know the molars with the roots coming out. If you put the pin front right on five out on that little promontory, you're supposed to play that from a forward tee. Same thing on three, you know, then the opportunity to extend holes, like number seven was potentially could be a drivable par four, yep. but Thomas intended for that hole location to be back right up on that, in that kind of tucked in behind the bunker so that there was a strategy to it as well. It wasn't just smash it, it was trying to access these things. So within each and every golf hole, he had multiple ways to play it, but he also, which every good designer does, but he had multiple ways to set it up mm -hmm. corresponding, and that doesn't happen very often in design. And that was one of the things, I've said this before, is that you know we're fortunate to do all these restorations and they impact our original work, but, LACC impacted in a more profound way just because of what Thomas was thinking, what he was trying to accomplish, these courses within a course. It had a big influence on us in Rio for the Olympics, you know, having to build a golf course that would be playable for the public afterwards, but trying to create some challenges and angles that would be relevant for the best players in the world. And from that standpoint, we went 100% with courses within a course. So while they're not going to use a lot of that, because you know professional players don't like to show up and have a different golf course sure. i think they tried it at chambers bay it didn't work out very well um you know we all remember back to olympic and the 16th hole when they played that and, you know the controversy that ensued so i think the setup people understand that that's a really unique and interesting part of the course but it's probably better presented in a match play setup like they did at the walker cup the uh the sixth hole you're a huge advocate of the half par hole does six remind you of any other short four no, <laughs> I think the audacity to build a short par four as a blind tee shot is really, you know, it, it takes some stones to pull that one off and he did it. And from that standpoint, I think that's what will make it so interesting. You know, they're going to look at the scorecard and go, okay, 310 yards. I got to be able to drive this. And they're going to, obviously they're going to know this before they tee it up in a, in a round, but they're going to look and practice and go, all right, where's the green? And not only do you have to then go, okay, I'm going to decide to go for it. You've got to trust that line. So now the whole mental picture of not seeing the picture, trusting your line, pulling the shot, hitting it, and then correlating that with if you're the first guy to hit, now you've got to wait until the other guys to hit, and you've got to walk down that hill and go around the corner. I'm sure there'll be some gallery reactions so they'll know whether they drove the green or not, but they won't be sure where mm -hmm. they are and what position. So now not only do you have to – 
compose your thoughts and, and get yourself to hit the shot off the tee, but then you have to compose your emotions when you come around and find, oh my God, I'm in a footprint in a bunker or the barranca, or I'm in, in a tuft of grass, or yeah, I actually put it in a great place where now I can score from. And so I think that mental uh, part of the golf hole is fascinating to me. Um, the teen ground on 10, um, there's, there's a tee that's close to nine green, mm -hmm. and then there's a, a, a tee that's, that's not as far back. I believe the, the one that's near nine green is, I don't know, 417, something in that range. Yes. Um, and then there's another one that's like 384, 387. Which is the better tee in your estimation? I think that the, the way the hole is presented for the U.S. Open, I think the 417 hole is a little bit better. I think there's more thought process there. Uh, just because they've, you know, they've closed off certain avenues over the top of the bunkers down the, down the right-hand side. So I think now with the 417 trying to think, can I get over those bunkers to get up on the upper plateau or do I need to skirt them or do I lay up short of it? From the 384, I think most players in the field will be able to get over those bunkers and probably just hit it up there. Uh, top. Do you do you think that the driving quarters there there's there's some nice width on this golf mm -hmm. course? Um, I, I think that differentiates it from Riviera. I think Riviera to me is is would be a more demanding driving golf course under U.S. Open conditions with with rough. The grasses are different, um, which is a real factor. Um, any concern at all about the width on the golf course? Not really, because I think, you know, as you know, every, the, every golf course, you know, we were watching it at Oak Hill, which, by the way, I thought Andrew Green did a great job. I thought it was tremendous, the outcome of that, you know, again, with the restoration of Donald Ross's stuff. You know, if you watch that for four days, you realize, okay, yeah, they're going to score on these three or four holes, and then, of course, it's just going to take it back. Mm -hmm. So I think there are going to be opportunities out there for them to score. And if the width helps them score in those areas, great. But then there are the other areas where the width, like on 13, if you don't get your ball up onto the top of that ridge, that width is actually going to hurt you yeah. because your ball is just going to keep running, 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 and you're going to be blind and you're going to be further away from the golf hole. And so I think there are aspects, same thing on number five, where the width isn't, it's, as I said before, it's, it's not effective width. It's basically those fairways can be narrow even though they're 60 yards wide. So I think there are going to be aspects of this design where the width is going to be helpful from a scoring perspective, but not everywhere. And, and I think what the USGA has decided to do, and I applaud them wholeheartedly for this, is they said, listen, we could have narrowed every single fairway out here and made this more, but we would be doing a dishonor to George Thomas and his architecture at LACC and they decided we would rather present a test that's more fitting to what he designed versus us having to basically change every single aspect of that. So I think what, what you're gonna see is a, is a really good compromise. Some of the shorter holes like 10, like 12, they've narrowed the fairways and made that a bigger part of the driving challenge. Uh, the bigger holes, five, 13, 18, they've left alone. 17 and they're going to be plenty wide and that's great i think the players are are going to use that hopefully wisely i've always said i think the winner here is going to be somebody cerebral somebody who thinks about their angles and so if you've got width it's very similar to augusta mm -hmm. you've got width but if you're on the wrong side or out of position it doesn't matter how wide those fairway are because you know as, as jason gore says you when you're out of position at lacc you're going to be busy the uh the 13th fairway was that did they do anything to that or is that just, I know that according to Jeff Shackelford, the equipment used by the Fowler team, things had, had improved. 
that there were, I, I think they were described as road scrapers that mm -hmm. were used when, when Thomas's team came in. Did they do anything to that? Because that is, if you're on the wrong side, like you said, it reminds me a little bit of 17, I know it's different, but 17 Olympic. Like you, I, I chase it up the left-hand side of the fairway, you get up there and it's in the first cut on the right-hand side. I mean, the 13 reminds me a little <laughs> bit of that. If, you're, if, you're, if you ride that spine, it's gonna get right. There are, there are certainly aspects of that. And that's a hole that, you know, if you can bomb it, you're probably at a significant advantage on, on 13 because it's, it's close to 300 yards to get it up on top of that ridge. Now, we widened the fairway out to the left in pre, in, as part of the overall design, and we removed some trees over there, and that provides a flatter spot. So I think the, the shorter hitters are going to have to aim to the left and try and keep it on that left side and keep it up on the shelf or get it to creep up there versus the bigger players are gonna have the opportunity to go ahead and try and bomb it up onto the ridge. And if it goes over, while if it does continue to roll to the right, it's a much shorter club in your hand, even though you can't see what's going on. And it does tend, the plateau tends to broaden up there. So that'll be a hole to watch where I think the bombers have an advantage on it. Other holes where they're, you know, they're gonna be like 12, I don't think a bomber has any advantage. The, um, with all these golf courses that you and your team have worked on that are in these major championship rotations, what have you guys learned about your own design philosophy as, as these are being put under the, the most difficult and challenging test by the best players in the world? I, I think what we've learned more than anything, I mean, there, there are two things, right? We've learned that when we trust Perry Maxwell, when we trust A.W. Tillinghast, when we trust George Thomas, when we trust the variety of architects who contributed to the country club, the result is often really good. Those guys understood golf. They understood how to defend a golf course. They built golf courses uh, solely for the purpose of playing them, right, as opposed to selling real estate or doing other things. And so we've trusted, we've had to modernize, obviously move tees back bunkers, shift things around a little bit. But when we've trusted implicitly their core principles to the golf course and the way they set it up and the greens that they built and the angles that they established, it has been enough to test the best players in the world now without us having to infuse our thoughts or our opinions into their designs. It's really, it's been a clear path for us to say, we think it's enough and so far to date it has been. The other thing that we've learned, and it's the humbling thing for golf architects, is once this tournament starts, we have zero input. You know, we don't have to, there's, if we've done our job, then the setup teams and the, and the golf course superintendents, the John Bodenhowers, the Jeff Halls, the Kerry Hagues, you know, and the, the Chris Wilsons, the David Johnsons, the Russ Myers, they're the ones who are controlled that week and mother nature of course you know whatever the weather is going to do but they if we've given them enough tools in their toolbox to set the golf course up as difficult or as easy as they want or to provide as much variety then mission accomplished from our standpoint ultimately they're the ones who are the arbiters of figuring out what type of conditions they want to present what hole locations they use, what's, what challenges, what strategies, and then the superintendents are working side by side with them to say, okay, we want the greens to be this firm, we want it to be this fast, we want the rough to be this high. So we've had to, and I just, you know, we've, we've had to just sit back and watch. And it's not as if we ever really disagree with it, but when you're used to being sort of in control of decision-making on how a golf course is gonna play, how it's gonna be presented, it's an interesting position to get ourselves in and we feel 100% comfortable in that 
regard. And I think that's a maturation on our part. Mm. And it's something we've learned because the other thing to do is what do I do? Hold my breath and kick and scream or, you know, go on Twitter and say, they didn't set up the game. Well, that would be a first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think there's, there's no use in that. And it's just a learning curve. And I think it's, it's an appreciation for how good they are at what they do and how good those original architects are at what they did. You, um, again, when you're, when you're either restoring or building original work, you you want to try to have as much breath as you can to the mind of of every skill when you walk in these practice rounds as you've done in these major championships where you've been entrusted to do this work is there an overriding narrative or theme that you hear from players because you do listen mm -hmm. uh no i mean it because every golf course is so different you know the the you would hate to hear somebody say um you know what we're going to play at lacc is you know oh well that same they did the same thing at southern hills or you know what they did at the country club it was the same thing that that they did at wingfoot we're hopeful that each course is distinctive and that each challenge that's presented is exactly you know the way the architect had intended it to be so that i don't think there's any general theme architecturally mostly what the players talk about is conditioning yeah. Right. It's too firm. The rough's too thick. Uh, fairways are not wide enough to, you know, their, their comments are generally more along the lines of, I don't know whether it's things they can influence or whether it's things that they just observe based on their week to week moving through this golf landscape that they play in. Their, their observations tend to be much more maintenance oriented as opposed to design oriented. Back to LA North, couple last things. Mm -hmm. The ground to me is such a valuable factor there. Um, you want it to be firm and fast, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we were talking with Chris, and he said something like, "If I hear firm and fast one more time, he he gets it. He knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, he knows that." And and you know, that's I think one of the things that's attractive about Southern California is the U.S. Open setting is that the weather should be very predictable. Yep. And I think when the USGA, what, one of the things they love about setup is this sort of more predictable outcome. They understand, like we understand that at LACC, the morning rounds, mostly going to be in June gloom. It's going to be gray. The greens will probably be a little bit more receptive, have a little bit of moisture in them from the cloud cover. The wind generally won't blow. And then about 10, 1030, the clouds will start to lift. Sun will come out, golf course will dry down, and then by the afternoon, the wind should blow. I mean, that's your typical pattern, and it's fairly repeat, repeat, repeat. The good thing there is that it's not like an open championship where a guy, one guy could get totally screwed and the, you know, they got a bad weather round in the morning and a bad weather round the next afternoon. They, the conditions should be exactly the same. So if you're morning Thursday, you're gonna get morning, you're gonna get afternoon Friday and you're gonna have the more challenging conditions. What we would hope to see is that when the leaders play in the afternoons on Saturday and Sunday, they're going to face the more challenging conditions. And so it'll be dry, it should be firm, and the wind should blow a little bit. It's not going to blow a gale, but enough to make a difference on the golf course. And I think all of those conditions, the construction of the greens, the USGA methodology, the type of turf grass, I think the, the willingness of the USGA to, within the bounds of keeping turf alive, to push the firmness meter on this property, I think, I think we're going to see a very firm golf course. All right, two things. Uh, what is your favorite home that is nearby that you can see from the golf course? What hole is it on? Hmm. That's a really interesting one. They tend to be a little bit large for my taste. <laughs> 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 
the one that's currently uh, undergoing a transformation, I think is Alwood, stayed up there by number six. The, the architecture of the original building there was pretty special. Okay, Lionel Richie's house is on, is that on four? That's on four. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which is not understated. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, then, and then last thing, in your time being on that property and you saw it from every angle, what's your favorite place it doesn't have to be in the middle of the 11th fairway or, right. or in the 11th fairway, that's a par three, that's a bad example. What's your favorite place to be on that property? My favorite place on that property is the Barranca on number eight. Mm. I love the sycamores and the way they drape some of the most beautiful trees I've ever seen in my life. Some of them laying over yet still alive the way the sand. Some older maybe than this country. Yeah, they're just, they're beautiful. And the way the light channels through that space in the mm. afternoon and the dappled and the filtered and just the, the contrast between the green of the golf course and the, and the sand and the native vegetation and those sycamores, that's, it's definitely my favorite spot. It's a long journey for this club. I mean, it's got extraordinary history, but it's history that's only been kept by the club itself. They're, they're, they're opening up to, to, for the world to see it. And I, like I said at the beginning, modestly, some people maybe saw it for the Walker Cup. Uh, this is this is the curtain being pulled completely. What do you think people are going to enjoy the most about Los Angeles Country Club? I, I, I think it's the landscape. Um, you know, I, 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 I've, I've seen a lot of the previews, and there's a lot of talk about glitter and L.A. and Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera. And I think LACC is anything but that. And I hope that the focus is more on the beauty of the Southern California landscape and how it's captured in that slice of property as opposed to more discussion about everything else that goes on around that golf course because it is, it's a beautiful landscape. The golf course exists in it. One of the greatest things that, and I digress for a second, that, that this club has done, and I wish every club in America would do it, is every year they invite plein air artists to come and just go out on the property and paint. And then the, they come and they paint and then they do a cocktail and they sell the paintings and the members buy them. And the most beautiful paintings have nothing to do with golf. Mm. They're about the Barranca and the golf is a backdrop and the golf is part of what's going on, but it's not the focus. And I think the fact that this incredibly beautiful piece of property married perfectly by one of the greatest golf course architects of all time, finally being presented as a host for our national championship is the views and the images will be spectacular. And I hope the focus is on that uh, because I think that would be a really fitting debut, but also a fitting legacy for, for Thomas's work and for LACC. I know it'll be an exciting, fun week for you. Uh, you're awfully kind. You and Jim and the cavemen are very, very busy uh, to carve out some time as you swing through Charlotte uh, to come and see us. Thank you. You're very welcome. Like you said, though, I'm here for Dead and Company. We know you're not here for us. <laughs> I've enjoyed this very much. It's been a lot of fun. And anytime I get to do this face to face, we'll do it. It's in his contract. He has to come in once every two years. So he has fulfilled his quota. We thank you for watching and listening to this Five Clubs conversation. We'll see you next week.